And as we talk about revival, it's one of the most important points is that Christ is in us and he is the personification of revival. When we talk about God being on the move, just a little heart to heart here, because I know this is a fun, kind of a family time. I really sense God is doing something sweet in our midst. I don't know if you sense that, but I do. I sense that there's something here that is something that in my heart I've been pursuing, I think, since the day we moved here. And what I mean by that is, is that you can have church, you can have a great program, you can have butts in the seat and nickels in the, in the, in the offering, like the, the Baptists say down here, right? <laughs> you can have all of that, and I love the Baptists, by the way, but not really have Christ in the midst um, speaking and communing with us. And the fact that we can gather together in our seats and be spirit-taught, be taught by the Holy Spirit, as the word is being spoken, as, as the word is being written, there's two witnesses. There's the written word, and then the second witness is the Holy Spirit that is witnessing with our spirit the things of God. And this is what we are really hungry for. When we gather together, I think everyone in this room is here because we are hungering and thirsting for Christ. We're not hungering and thirsting for anything else because we've, we've all been there. We've seen the other stuff, and that is spiritual fast food, and it does not fill. It might fill the belly for a couple hours, but later on you're, you're hungrier than you were before. I said, we have that hunger. And when we think about hunger, when we think about the hunger, what we truly hunger for, and what I truly hunger for here in the woodlands, is that, number one, we would see a fresh move of God where God is healing people, where God is touching people, as Chris was saying, as, that God would deliver people from things that, they're born again, but there are things in their life that maybe can still try to try to sink their hooks into and, and drag along. Our pastor used to call it cleaving spirits. And I do, say, I do believe that there is a ministry of deliverance. And by the way, when we say these key words sometimes, you may have a, a picture in your mind of how it was abused and say, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. But it is biblical to say that we are delivered because that's what that Greek word sozo means. It means to be not only saved from eternal destruction, but sozo means to be delivered. It means to be healed and saved from your present uh, attacks and circumstances that this world desires to continue to have in our life. And so we hunger for that, number one. We hunger for a fresh move of God that when people come to these meetings, when people meet together, whether it's house church here or if we're Saturday morning somewhere, at a coffee event with, you know, doing something, that people would detect that Christ is in, the, in our midst. And I'm not just saying, oh, Jesus was there. I'm saying that, like, when we met together, remember on the road to Emmaus? And, and I'm too off. I'm going off script as well from what I want to have prepared this morning. Remember the words that the disciples said to each other when they were on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. It's all over. This whole Jesus movement is done. He's dead. It's all over. It's done. It was, a, it was great, it was awesome, but now it's gone. And they're just, well, we're going to head home. I'm going north, I'm going to go to Emmaus, and, and that's great. And so Jesus catches up with them, speaking with them. He's expounding the scriptures, talking with them, and then they, and then they say, and then Jesus, they, they persuade Jesus, they say, I love this. They're loving the communion, they're loving the, the, the heart-to-heart fellowship. Jesus is, is bearing their burden and bearing their pain and their brokenness having just lost a great man that they loved. 
and Jesus is expounding the scriptures, they say, stay with us a little longer. And they broke bread together, and he did. You'd think that Jesus had a lot of things to do after his resurrection. No, he just had time to walk three miles an hour outside of the city of Jerusalem and, and work and heal and minister to these, these disciples. And, 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 and he disappears, he breaks the bread, and he, and, he, and he does communion with them, and they're like, wait, <laughs> this looks familiar. And then Jesus disappears, and they're like, aha, did not our hearts burn when we were talking with him? And as he expounded the scriptures, that's what my prayer, and that's number two, that's my second prayer I have here for our church, is that we would have theology on fire. That's a term that God gave me this past week, theology that we would have great theological teaching, but at the same time that it's just that it's just burning us up. Does that make sense? We would have strong clarity in our theology and what we believe, but at the same time that we would just not just stay crusty, but that we would let that consume us and give ourselves over to it, like like uh, Paul said to Peter. That's what we hunger for, and that's what we desire. We do not want to be. My prayer is that we would not be another church in the woodlands that is the status quo, but that we would have. When we leave these meetings, we would say, did not our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were being expounded, as we communed together? How does that happen? And I've been praying about that. I've been thinking about it. I remember when we lived overseas in Poland, these were the days when it was communism. We could not freely preach the gospel. We were being followed. All of our mail was being opened. So our phone calls were being tapped. Every time we would mention something, that they deemed political, the call would end. And they didn't have cell phones at that time. Uh, we just had, lo- we had um, telephone lines and sometimes we would call home. Uh, we would organize meetings and we had no place to meet because you, they could not have a church. Uh, the church, the only churches that existed were either the Catholic church and the only Protestant churches that existed were ones that in some way came under the umbrella of something else. So we were working among university students um, I remember, I remember just being in a taxi. It was like something out of a movie. So, you know, you, you you jump in the taxi, you're going somewhere, and all of a sudden, this black law that comes out from behind is like following you. You know, and you're looking in the mirror, and you, and and your polls are funny because they joke about this stuff. Yeah, we're being followed. You know, this guy probably wants some of your money or something. And and I just remember in that time when we did not have the liberty and the freedom to meet together and to evangelize. But I remember there was something in our midst. There was that burning heart. There was that, that was that theology on fire. And we, were, we could only meet in houses. And I remember meeting in houses where we had 30 or 40 people at a time. And we would have times of worship and prayer. And then there were times we would just go, go away somewhere to have a camp. And um, I just remember being in the mountains somewhere. And at night, we would go outside under the stars and we worship the Lord. You know, in a circle, and I remember the sense of the presence of God, but I also remember it was extremely hard. I remember every day wanting to leave that country, thinking, "What is wrong with these communists? They're taking my money. Uh, they're treating us so unfairly." And I remember, and this is this is no this is no persecution. This was just some uncomfortability I never suffered, like some of our brothers and sisters suffer in the Middle East right now. And I remember that. I remember though that 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 theology on fire, that burning heart that the disciples had in the road to Emmaus cost something. And it cost us being in his plan and saying no to the flesh 
and, and, and no to things that we could have, that we could have rightfully said yes to because we're Americans or whatever. There's a cost to that. And you know what the cost, when you look at it, because when you see Jesus, when you see who he is and you read who he is in the Gospels, you look at the cost and you laugh at it. You're like, that's it? I mean, you know, because you see Jesus high and lifted up. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And you look at what, and, and you know, some of us don't really, we're not coming out of a glorious life. Sometimes people say, God saved me from a great career. I was making a lot of money and this was great. I can't say that. God saved me from a life of just mundane boredom going nowhere, but just going straight into the ground failure. That's what God saved me from. So I have nothing to really say. I'm really like, you know, Jesus, take my life because I, I was not having a great life. When we think about, we think about that cost. When we think about the cost of the anointing, when we think about the cost of discipleship, we know that it is, it's so, it's so worth it. It's painful, but it's so worth it when we see him who we follow. And I want to just focus on this just for a couple minutes this morning with the time left. In Exodus chapter 33, uh, verses 7 through 10, we see this principle of being outside the camp. Outside the camp. How many have ever heard a message about outside the camp or being outside the camp? Raise your hands if you've heard a message about being outside the camp. You guys, have you? Outside the camp, have you ever heard a message about being outside the camp, following Christ outside the camp in Hebrews 13? Okay. Are you really? Okay, I'm preaching it now, yeah. Exodus 33. Let's give a little context here. Let's first read this. We read something very interesting that's going on. Now Moses, Exodus 33, verses 7 through 10. And thank you, Amber, for coming in here and just kind of throwing all these, putting all these slides together. It's amazing that she did this. Now Moses used to take the tent, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. What's the camp? This is where all the this is where all the Israelites were in the desert. This is during their their journey through the desert, these 40 years in the desert, and they are this populace of about two million people. Can you imagine that in the middle of the desert? And Moses takes and he takes his tent, probably the tent that he's living in, and he's moving it outside the camp. It's as far away from the camp. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. This sounds like we're the revival tent back in the day, these revival tents, the way they would set these up and put these out there. People would gather together back in the day here, and which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw, in verse 10, the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship where? At the, at the tent, each at the tent of his tent door. What an odd situation here. What, a, what is happening here? Let me give a little context. In Exodus chapter 19 through 31, Moses, where is Moses? Moses is actually on Mount Sinai and God is speaking to him about the law. God is giving Moses the law and actually no other people group, no other ancient civilization, the Canaanites, Mesopotamians, all of these ancient, ancient civilizations, none of them had anything like this. This is what made 
uh, Israel a, such a unique nation that they had laws. And these laws were given. And so for, from chapter 19 to verse chapter 31, Moses is 40 days up in this mountain. And the, the Israelites are looking up. There's clouds up there. Uh, there's thunder. There's lightning. There's rumbling. It's a pretty horrifying scene. And so in chapter 32, Aaron makes Aaron starts feeling the pressure of the people. The people are like, hey, we don't know in Exodus chapter 32. We don't know what's happened with this Moses. They use this, this Moses like as if he was some separate guy that was, you know, like this Moses. And we don't know what happened with him. We have to take matters into our own hand. These are the people. Aaron says, Aaron feels the pressure. Now, Aaron, to me, represents a Christian leadership that has no conviction. It's a kind of leadership that's really being, that is really subservient or influenced by powerful personalities or the movement or the trend of, of the of of the crowd that day and so Aaron here is a man also is a man does not know how to hear from God he's not hearing from God he doesn't know what's going on he's actually Moses's right-hand man but he's not hearing from God Moses has uh, Aaron has no idea what God is doing up there on the mountain could this be the way that leadership today looks in Christianity that there are men that do not know how to hear from God that God is doing something on Sinai and they are not hearing from God. They don't know what's going on from God. At that moment, when the people said, let us take things in their own hand, what, needs to, what needed to happen was is that Aaron needed to get alone with God, get on his face before God, and begin to intercede. But he doesn't. What he does is, is he says, okay, guys, great idea. Give me all of your golds. We're going to make a golden calf. Now, this golden calf is very, very unique in um, ancient pagan religion and it's very significant what it means and I don't have time to get into it but they make a golden calf and I never saw this until yesterday they make this golden calf you know what they do they call it Jehovah (laughs) they call it Jehovah they call this the calf Jehovah and then they have a worship service they're having a worship service around this calf around this young calf it's a worship service it's like a worship service does that sound crazy or what here is it's a worship service, and they're worshiping this cow, and they're calling it Jehovah. And where's Moses? Moses is at, he's with God. Aaron's not hearing from God. Aaron is is being pushed and, and pulled around by the the opinions of the the crowd. And so Aaron here is being led astray, and is not hearing from God. Exodus thirty three. God, what happens is is that God is. 32 and 33, God speaking to Moses says, you know what, I hear the roar of, of, of idolatry going on today, uh, right now, in the camp. I hear that in the camp. And Moses goes down. We know that he gets down to the foot of, the, of Sinai. Uh, him and Joshua um, hear what's going on. He smashes the, the, the law, and I, I don't think it was necessarily out of anger. It could have been him throwing the law, the law and smashing it on the rocks. I think it was just a symbol of Moses has not even gotten off the mountain, and the law is totally broken. Is that human nature or what? Salvation is not through the law. And so Moses comes in, and I don't want to talk about that right now, but Moses comes into the camp, speaks to the camp. God says, I'm, le- I'm done with these people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. Moses begins to intercede with God. He falls on his face. 
where Moses gets this love and respect and honor for the people of Israel is just really spiritual. It's really something incredible that a leader would love broken people so much that he is willing at the, at, at the end, at his own cost to lose something so that God would not, so that he could intercede for God's people. We need intercessors like that today. We need people, we need to pray for each other like that today. We need leaders like that. And God says, God, God says, I'm leaving this camp. I'm leaving. I cannot be in the midst of this compromise and I can't be in the midst of this sin and I can't be in the midst of this idolatry. God says, I'm leaving the camp. I'm leaving the camp. And so Moses, what he does is, is he takes in Exodus 33 and verse 7, he takes his tent. And there's a lot of discussion with commentaries. What is this tent? Where is it from? And because you know what? We don't even, the, the, the tabernacle that was being carried around in the wilderness has not, has not been, is, doesn't exist yet. Because actually that's what God is talking with Moses about in Sinai. What there was from the time that they leave Israel to that point was probably just a very simple tent. And maybe even Moses lived in this tent. And it was a place where people would go and pray. And God would meet. And there's no, there's no altar of incense in there. There's none of these items that you would find in the, in the tabernacle. And so Moses says, he picks up his tent and he goes, and says he goes far off. Probably far enough. I don't know how far that is, but it's far. Can you imagine the scene? Here's Moses every day or multiple times of the day. Gets up, leaves his tent, and he's making his way. Two million people, a lot of people. Making his way out of the camp, outside the gates, and he's going out to this tent out in the, in the desert somewhere. And it says that everybody, when they heard that Moses was leaving, they would, the whole family would gather around the doors of their tent and they'd watch him go. I just last night I was walking and I was praying and I was thinking about that picture, what that picture looks like. Here's a man that wants to know God, that wants to hear from God, that wants to lead his people, that wants to be faithful to the commission that God has given him, and he's getting up and he's walking out. This is a location, and get this, this is a location. It's a very simple tent. It's not the temple yet. It's the tent. And it was designated for a place for people to go to seek God's face. To seek God's face. And he goes out there and people are just watching him go. Can you imagine the scene? I'd love to see him. I mean, I must have been, I should have been a movie writer. I don't know. But I can just see the scene of like him walking by, heads turning, and just the looks on people's faces like, who is this guy? Where is he going? And we are, and just what they're thinking about themselves. They're going, he's going out. And the biggest thing for me that is just a shock is that no one is going with Moses. No one's going out there to seek the Lord. He's out there by himself. And he goes out there, and there's one guy in the end of Exodus 33, verse 11, that we read that's in there in the tent with him, and that is who? Remember who it is? Joshua. Joshua, being a young man, it says in verse 11, enters, enters the temple and does not leave. Moses is going in and out, in and out. Joshua is a man of prayer. Man of prayer. And I don't think that it's a I don't think it's a coincidence that Joshua being a man of prayer later later on becomes a man of war. Prayer leads into wisdom and warfare. So Moses takes his camp outside the camp, takes his tent outside the camp. I want to get going here because there's stuff I want to say and I don't want this to be too long. Number one, why is it significant that Jesus was led out of the city? and crucified outside the city. Why? Because there was sin 
There was tolerance. There was compromise. There was familiarity. And there was death in the camp. And God could not. He came into Jerusalem, spent a week there. He was rejected and he was taken outside the camp. And he was crucified at the place of the skull. Do you know what was outside the camp, by the way? What was outside? Do you know what was outside of the Jewish camp? Do you know what was? There were people outside the camp. There were objects outside the camp. There was conditions outside the camp. We read in the book of Numbers and we read in the book of Leviticus later on. And actually in Exodus chapter 29, before all this is happening, before God has Moses take the tent out of the camp. And guess what's outside the camp? There are, there are the leftover carcasses of bulls and sacrifices that were smoldering, smoldering piles of smoke and stink. Can you imagine that? Two million people, constant sacrifices. Um, these animals, after they were, they, were set, they were sacrificed, they were dragged out of the city and they were burnt. And the, and the priests that would take the sacrifice outside the city, and this is significant, had to wear a different set of clothing. He couldn't wear his priestly clothes to take this out of the camp. And do you know why that is? Because this, uh, this represented the leftover of sin. This was the ashes, the memories, the, 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 what is left over, the, the cart, the trash. And so they're actually, it's actually the priest has changed his clothes. He goes outside the camp, dumps this carcass that's missing a bunch of innards, and it's on fire and it's smoldering and it stinks. There's also other people out there. There are lepers out there outside the camp. Because the, camp, and the lepers could not be inside the camp. No leper could live inside of a walled city. What is, why is that important? Because you know and I know that leprosy was a disease that was extremely painful. And it was, it was a disease that would drill down into your body and it would kill you from the inside out. It was just a horrible way to die. And leprosy was seen as judgment from God. And so the lepers are out there too. The sin offering, the leftovers of the sin offering, the trash is out there burning. You got these lepers that are out there that are they're the untouchables. But there's also other people out there. There are the there are the people that had physical issues. People, women that had that had a, a um, that were hemorrhaging, that were considered unclean. They could not be in the camp. They're out there. Women walking around, moms, wives, they're out there. They've been kicked out by society. They can't come into the gates. And you also have people that, there are other people that are out there too. There were people that had inadvertently or on purpose had touched a dead body or someone that was dead. They were now unclean and they had to go outside. So you had all these this weird group of people out there and it was just a mess and it was stinking. And this is where Moses decides to take the tent of the meeting, the place that God is going to meet with Moses outside the camp, and he puts it outside into this location. Odd, isn't it? Isn't that a strange picture? Yet, this is what happens with the greatest act of redemption. And this is the second point I want to make. This is, this is where the greatest act of redemption happens. This is the geographical location. This is the place that God chooses that his son would die in the midst of all of this outside the camp. Jesus is led out of the camp. He is there. He is crucified on Golgotha, which is just outside of the Jerusalem wall, some say. And he's there crucified. And he's crucified in the presence of all of these people and all of these carcasses. What a scene this is. 
The third thing I want to say is this. Is that, and this is the last thing is, why are we exhorted by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 14? And I want to read those with you now. Why are we exhorted this way? And let's read these verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Okay? So Jesus also suffered outside the gates When they would slay the animal, they would slay the animal outside the gate, outside the gate of the city, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him. I love these words. They impacted me so much last night and then this morning when I was thinking about these words. Let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I hope that I can communicate the way the Spirit communicated this to me through these words last night and this morning. Let us go to Him. Let us go to Him. He's outside the city. He's in, the, he's in, the, he's in, a, he's in a smelly place. You ever been in a place where they're burning animals? I have. I remember as a child up in New Hampshire when I was living there, a farm of a, farm, a cattle farm had caught fire over the night, and there was hundreds of cattle that died. And the smell of burning cattle and burning cows and bulls was horrendous. I mean, they had they had been burned alive and they died. I remember the putrid smell. This was the smell outside the camp. This is where Jesus was. This is where the writer of Hebrews chapter 13, who's writing to Hebrews, who are beginning to think, do I really want to be a Christian or do I want to go back to Judaism? Who were once Catholics and they're thinking, I want to go back to Catholicism. Who were once this and they want to go back to that. And he's writing, follow, go out to him. And it's smelly out there. It's not comfortable. The people are not. Your friends are not necessarily there. But also, too, there's death out there. There's lepers. There are people that are rejected by society. And that's where Jesus went. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wild? That because of the familiarity, the compromise in the camp, Jesus had to leave. He was left. He was brought out of the city, just like the tent of the meeting where Moses met God, was brought out of the city and into this unpleasant environment. And that's where God met man. When we talk about revival, we're not talking about something that's going to happen downtown in the center square where, where, all, of the great, um, where all the great events happen, Minute Maid Park. I mean, these are all awesome places, okay? But if Jesus was to come today, would he be downtown Houston? I don't know. He'd probably be outside the camp. How does that mean? What does that mean to us personally, practically? It means this. The camp represents the religious, the social, the economic, uh, the fashion, and even the emotional trends of the city that we live in, in the society that we live in. The camp represents the religious idealism, the mainstream religious thought, where today there's so much sin in the camp. There's so much compromise in, in churches today. And I'm not, I don't want to sound judgmental, but this is the way it is, that how can I come to church and I say this pleading for the grace of God in my own life because I'm not perfect. But how can, we, how can we come to church? And how can we be?
be in church, worship the Lord, and then on Monday, judge and gossip and pull out this crazy stuff that's on TV. These TV, um, uh, these TV series that are just filled with sex and just all this craziness and murder and betrayal and stuff that, and we begin to commune with the world. And this is the very world that crucified our Savior. What part do we have in this world? What part do we have in this culture? And I don't want to, I don't, I hope, please don't feel that I'm being judgmental, but I'm just saying here that if we want to know God, if we want to have communion at that place of the tent of the meeting, we have to go outside the camp. We have to step outside the modern trend. We have to step outside of our depression, the camp of depression. We have to step outside of the camp of pornography and drugs and alcohol. We have to step outside the camp of complaining and all of these things that are so that are so acceptable today in our society it's kind of trendy to talk about your marriage i have a new job i'm working in the woodlands in a very nice location very beautiful um office space and i am the it guy there and and i'm just running i'm just doing their network and i went to get they have a nice espresso machine there so i went to get some coffee and there are certain moments of the day where everybody just kind of gathers there. If you guys work in the offices, you know what I'm talking about. And they're all kind of gathering, and they're just all kind of talking stuff, you know. And it's never really edifying. It's never about how great Jesus is. It's about, this is what my wife doesn't like about me. And there's one guy, the boss, was complaining about his wife. And this other one was complaining. And it was like, they're talking about their marriages, and I'm like, I cannot be in this room right now. <laughs> I just grabbed my coffee and went back to my workstation. This is not, this is the camp today that we live in, that we work in. God calls us out to commune with him. This cannot be in the church. If we want to see a move of God, if we want to see the Holy Spirit burning in hearts of people, seeing people turn from their ways, be delivered from from the crazy bondage that's in the world, then let's meet him outside the camp. And that also means this. I don't mean to sound a separatist, and I don't mean to sound like an elitist, because I don't mean it that way. I, I, I love what God's doing in Christianity in the woodlands. I love it. But is it possible that I could be in the camp of Christianity and not even see Jesus? It's like, I mean, I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir here. And I've been there. And I'm from up north, where we don't have big churches like you all down, down here have. I should say us, because I'm now a Texan. I think. I have a Texan license. So that works, right? Uh, and I go to these big churches, and I think, this must be successful. This must be success. This must be incredible. Like, I got to all these people. And, you know, there are large churches, and I'm sure that God is moving in, in great ways. I'm absolutely sure of it. I'm not in any way casting, you know, I'm, I'm not bashing mega churches. But I'm saying that I did visit churches with my wife and friends that we went to. I mean, it was a great worship service. And it was, I mean, everybody was smiling, and then, it was just, a, it was a great, it was a message, and it's like, well, there's some good points here that was stimulating, and you walk out, and it's like, where was, and, you, and you're like, okay, now here's the lobby, coffee, donuts, and then just fellowship. People are out the door, man, they're just going out the door. There's no communion, there's no fellowship. And it's like, where is, where is Jesus here? I, need, I needed to see Jesus. I'm not trying to knock Christianity. They're doing what they're supposed to do. My prayer is, is that we would have a tent of meeting in Evergrace. That we would have burning hearts in Evergrace. That we would walk away from our services challenged, encouraged, and brokenhearted for the world that we live in. 
Jesus would walk out. He walked out into the walked out into the outside of the camp. He was with the lepers and he touched the lepers. He was with the adulteresses and he and he healed them. He was with the unclean and he touched them and they were healed. Jesus was among company. He was creating a community that had never been seen before in human history. This was a community of faith. This was a church and this was a really great, a really odd group of people. Ignorant fishermen. I mean, this is the group that Jesus that Jesus these were the disciples. I want to finish with this. Jesus went out and he doesn't when does he come back to Jerusalem after the resurrection? What does that mean? We go out, we're outside the camp. God calls us back into the camp. God calls us back into the camp, a different person, resurrected. He calls us back into the camp where there's sin, there's, when, there's toler- when there's tolerance of things that should not be tolerated in Christianity. Where the Holy Spirit is like a dove, can be so easily grieved that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit in our words, and that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit in our thought life, that we'd not grieve the Holy Spirit with what we see on our screens, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would let Him love us. And, that, and, and this is the point I wanted to make, is that when we go out of the camp, we're not, we're not worried about our sanctification. And I know that there are great preachers out there that talk about leaving the camp is all about your sanctification. You've got to sanctify yourself. and You're going to get ready, and then you go see Him. No, I think if you and I are enraptured with the, who Jesus Christ is, guess what happens? All of that stuff just falls off. Sin falls off. Habits fall off. All of these things, they just become unattractive idols in our life. And so Jesus comes back. He's resurrected. He's in the upper room in John chapter 20 and chapter 21. And he's talking. He's going through walls. He's going and he's talking to guilty disciples. (laughs) All of them left. All of them left Jesus at the cross. Except for the lepers and all these people that were out there. They, They couldn't go anywhere if that's where Jesus was. And what does Jesus say to the disciples? Guys... John, Peter, I have a calling on your life. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's like, in the end, Jesus hits the nerve. Peter says, you know what? I think you're an amazing guy. Phileo, I love you. I think you're an amazing guy. I like you. But I, I'm not there. I'm not at this agape yet. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus comes back into the camp, and we're called to come back into the camp. We're called to come back into the camp and testify of the resurrected Lord and Savior. We're called to come back into the camp, a camp that's very dysfunctional, that's very organized, that's very beautiful and very ornate, (laughs) beautiful. But yet you walk in and there's something missing. Have you been to Jerusalem? I have not. I've been everywhere else, but I've not been to Israel yet. But what I hear is that when you walk the streets of Jerusalem, you go to Capernaum, you go to Bethany, you go to these different places that Jesus walked, you see these incredible, you see these incredible historical places, and yet there's this major missing, gaping hole in their religion and in their traditions and in their in their cities, and that is an unfulfilled concept. It's an unfulfilled hole, and that is Jesus Christ is missing. They're not celebrating Christ, and you see all these incredible things about Jewish history, and yet he's left the camp. He's left the camp. He's not there. And where do we find Christ? We find him Sunday morning. We find him Thursday night. We find him early in the morning praying with a brother. We find him, uh, like, like Chris was saying, praying with a sister. 
We find them in communion. We find them when we get together in, in the most basic simplicity because that's where Jesus is He's outside the camp. It may be, guys, I'm just going to say this to you all, it may be discouraging sometimes what we see happen. You know, sometimes people are here, they're not here. Sometimes that may be discouraging for you. I would say that our one reason why we're meeting together here is this, and I am so free from this, is that that we would commune with Christ like we did this morning. Pray together, that we would just love on each other, that we would encourage each other. Whoever God brings through those doors, have communion, and then pray for those that couldn't make it. Because you know something? Christ is the issue here. Come unto him. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable, like Chris is saying. We're being called outside the camp. Or we could be in the camp, and we could just be like everybody else. And we could do that. I mean, we could get into a marketing strategy. We could have like a killer program. And believe me, I know we could do it. And we could just pack the place out. We could do it. But I think that there would be something missing because there would be so much focus on everything else other than Christ, Jesus in our midst. So I want to say to us this morning, let's not worry about leaving the camp. Let's not judge the camp. As we leave the camp, let's encourage ourselves. Let's go and, and be, be enraptured by Christ. Let's be encouraged by him and meet him in the tent. Because guess what's going to happen? When you walk in, guys, guys, I'll just say, you guys have an anointing in your life. And I know I'm preaching along this morning. But when you get up in your life and you're walking out the door because you're going to go meet God, people take notice. Everybody's going to stand at the tent door. And they're going to be like, hey, there's, there goes Colton. He's, he's going to go meet God. He's a strange bird. You know, there, go, there goes Missy. Okay, she's going out. There goes, there goes Ryan. They're going out to meet God. There's something about their life that's strange. It's foreign. It's different. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Here comes Eduardo from downtown in the city driving up to, driving up to the woodlands every Sunday. You know? Demons look at our life and they're just like, they're just trying to figure it out. Like, I don't get it because they don't see the, the glory and the value of Jesus Christ. Let's just close in prayer. And 